We read God's word this evening in the book of Matthew, chapter 8. The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 8. We read the whole chapter. First verse begins, when he was come down from the mountain. Preceding this is the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 8, verse 1. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will, be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus saith unto him, See, thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled, and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you, that many shall come from the east and west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness, There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. And when Jesus was come into Peter's house, he saw his his wife's mother, so his mother-in-law. He saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto them. When the even, that is evening, when the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he was come to the other side, into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils, coming out of the tombs exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? And there was a good way off from them, and heard of many swine feeding. 
So the devils besought him, saying, If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said unto them, Go. And when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine. And behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. And they that kept them fled and went their ways into the city and told everything and what was befallen to the possessed of the devils. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coasts. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired word. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. We consider this evening in particular verses 16 and 17 of Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities, and bear our sicknesses. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what an evening that was in Capernaum. And what it must have looked like if we had been there and witnessed these events taking place that are described in verses 16 and 17. Outside Peter's door, you have all manner of sick and diseased people. Not only that, but them that are possessed with demons showing up to Peter's door. It was a scene of pain, a scene of suffering. It was a snapshot of the world on this side of the fall and the misery that we brought into this world by our fall in Adam. And right in the midst of it, right in the midst of that mess, is Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son of Righteousness, arisen with healing in His wings. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, uh, with His work boots on, as it were, in the trenches outside Peter's door, doing His work as the great physician. Jesus, who is the light of the world, the resurrection and the life. He who came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. Well, this evening we we consider Jesus in this text. As the Greeks said to one of Jesus' disciples near the time when Jesus was betrayed, they said, Sir, sirs, we would see Jesus. We want to see Jesus, said the Greeks. And that's the desire of the church throughout history. We would see Jesus. Present to us Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Well, here he is in his mission as the Messiah, as the King of Israel, as the Savior who came into this world to save his people from their sins. Now, the theme of the sermon this evening is the king heals the sick. And you may you might say, well, where does king come from? We don't read about king in these verses, and we don't, we don't read of kingdom. Well, the book of Matthew, one of the themes of Matthew is emphatically Jesus' kingship. That he is the the son of David, the king of Israel, who has come in fulfillment of God's promise. Already Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Here's the genealogy. And the first thing, the son of David. Here he is. The Sermon on the Mount that precedes this text, emphatically a sermon that has to do with the kingdom. And as we'll see later on in the sermon, this wonder that Jesus performed that evening outside Peter's door, this was a kingdom miracle. And it was a flashing forth of the kingdom of heaven by the word and by the works of the Son of David. So let us consider then this text under the theme, The King Heals the Sick. Noticing in the first place, the sickly scene. Noticing in the second place, the wonderful healing. And noticing in the third place, the powerful means. The sickly scene. 
Well, from the other parallel accounts, if we put all of the data together, it was Capernaum, that fishing town in the Sea of Galilee where Jesus was wont to be in his ministry. And he is in the house of Simon Peter. He had just healed Simon Peter's wife, uh, Simon Peter's wife's mother. So Peter was married, had just healed Peter's mother-in-law of the fever. And he's in that house, and it's the Sabbath day, but the Sabbath now is drawing to a close. The evening is coming in. And so many people in Capernaum had begun to hear about this Jesus from Nazareth who was doing amazing things, mighty miracles, that were taking people's breath away. And so when evening now comes, the evening after Sabbath, we learn that many in the city brought to Jesus the sick and the diseased and the demon-possessed as well. Matthew 8, verse 16, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. And he cast out spirits, the spirits with his word. What we find in the so Old Testament, intertestamentary period, and then New Testament, and you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what we find when we read the gospel accounts is that at the time of Jesus coming into this world, there were these, uh, these demon-possessed people. And as though... When Jesus came into this world, the kingdom of darkness rose up with a fury against the cause of Jesus Christ. And so there were these that were possessed with devils. They were under the control, under the influence of demons, devils, unclean spirits belonging to the realm of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. And that was, that was ugly. To behold. At the end of chapter 8, we read of the Gerg- these two men uh, in the country of the Gergesenes. You, you didn't want to go anywhere near them. That, that demon possession manifested itself in such a way that it, it, it gave you shivers. Well, it wasn't just them that were demon possessed. We also read, verse 16, that he healed all that were sick. All that were sick and all that were diseased. And one can only imagine if there had been a modern Western medical doctor there on the scene with a clipboard diagnosing all of these people that were being brought to Jesus. It was a very, very long list. And the Bible itself speaks of all manner of diseases and sicknesses in, at the time when Jesus came into this world. But what a scene. A sickly scene. We read in Mark 1 that all the city was gathered together at the door. That's how many, that the inspired writer Mark, all the city was gathered together at the door. And just imagine it now. Put yourself in Simon Peter's house. There you are in Simon Peter's house. Uh, The sun has uh, drawn to a close. The evening has come on. And you, you open up the window curtain. And you peer outside. And in the the light of dusk, next thing you know, you see all kinds of people coming closer and closer right to the house where you are in. And, And as these people come closer and closer, you begin to discern as you peer out of that window. You look over to the right and you see someone there and... As it gets closer, you can tell from the, from his eyes that this man is blind and he's been blind from his birth. It just has that glaze on his eyes. And he's probably in tatters because he's had to beg his whole life for food. You look out in the other direction and you see a man, uh, bringing a man. And this other man is, uh, everything suggests one thing. Demon possession. And your insides uh, become queasy as you realize that people are bringing demon-possessed people right to your house. You look out in another direction and you see two men carrying a cod. And in that cod is a man who's been paralyzed from the waist down all his life. He's never walked once in his life. 
Maybe someone else is bringing another person, and on the outside, it doesn't seem that there's anything wrong, but the way that this person is hunched over and bowed down, you can tell that there's something very, very wrong inside this man or inside this woman or inside this child. And so the whole city, as it were, so many people gathered outside Peter's house. The ground outside his door became a hospital ward, and it was not a pretty sight. Let us not sanitize this account. Sometimes we fall into that habit. We're familiar with the words of Scripture, and we read about these things. Jesus healed demon-possessed people. Uh, these demon-possessed people in the, Gerges, the country of the Gergesenes, etc., etc. And we just kind of go on and move on um, in our reading. Let's not sanitize this account. Just like, let's not sanitize the coming into this world of Jesus Christ. Around Christmas time, you go down the street and people have the cute little manger scenes outside their front door. And you have, you know, the wise, uh, you have all these people in their finest clothing, um, warm and cozy light, uh, a baby comfortably resting in this fancy crib, all the rest. That is not what it looked like when Jesus came into this world. If you had been with those shepherds that ran up into Bethlehem to see the son of David who was born, as you got closer and closer to that stable, you'd probably start to smell something funny in the air. It probably stank when you went into the, into the stable. And as, if you were to walk into the stable, you would have seen an ordinary young Jewish woman holding a baby in her arms, wrapped in ordinary swaddling clothes, and, and a, a man named Joseph there as well. And his crib was a feeding trough. Well, let's not sanitize this account either in Matthew 8, 16, and 17. It was an ugly scene. It was a sickly setting. If we had been there, our insides would have been queasy. We would have wanted to give that whole business a wide berth. We wouldn't have wanted to go anywhere near it with a 10-foot pole. But perhaps that reaction, perhaps our sensibilities betray too high an estimation of ourselves. If we were to place ourselves outside of that group gathered outside Peter's door, and if we were to suppose to ourselves that we have everything all right and figured out, uh, and that we belong to a different category of people than these people, that betrays too high an estimation of ourselves. Literally, that word sick in verse 16, people that uh, they had it badly. They had it badly. We have it badly in and of ourselves. And now we're broadening out, no longer talking only about sickness and disease that we experience as well in one degree or another, but Uh, From a spiritual perspective, we are them who by nature have it badly with sin. Now the text doesn't use the word sin, but let me ask you this question. When did sickness and disease enter into this world? The answer is our fall in the Garden of Eden in Adam when we sinned against God. Sickness and disease belong to that great big umbrella of death that God warned Adam about in the garden. In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And by one man's sin, death came, and death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now that's not to say that with respect to our sicknesses and diseases, that if we get sick, for example, that that's directly sin-caused, that God is sending this because we've done something wrong and this is a chastisement for our sin. We may not draw those kinds of uh, connections as though we uh, know the divine mind and all of the whys and wherefores of sickness or disease. Think about Jesus' disciples in the book of John. There's a man who's blind uh, from birth 
And the disciples walk by and hardly sympathetically, instead of helping this blind beggar, they say, Jesus, uh, who's the one who sinned, this man or his parents, which is the reason why he's been born blind? And so here they are trying to figure all of this out without helping the man. And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents, but that the works of God might be made manifest in him. At the same time, as we said, sickness and disease trace their origin, trace their source, their springing into this world by the fall of man, uh, at the fall of man into sin. And because of the fall of man into sin, not only did it bring consequences from a bodily, physical perspective, but that day by nature we became guilty and corrupt with sin so that we are conceived and born in sin and riddled with guilt by nature. Well, Jesus came into this world to save guilty and corrupt people. First Timothy, the apostle says, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am chief, says the apostle Paul. Jesus did not come into this world to save the good and the righteous and those who do not need help. He came to save really sick sinners. Chapter away in Matthew 9, we find this language of healing, but now applied to a spiritual domain. In Matthew chapter 9, what we uh, learn of there, in verses 11 and 12, you have Jesus in verse 10, and he is sitting down and eating with publicans and sinners. In verse 11, when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why is your master eating with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Be not as the Pharisees who stood like this, uh, figuring to themselves that they were better than others while they looked down and despised these publicans and sinners for the great big sinners that they were. As though these Pharisees were, were any different. These Pharisees supposed that they were whole. They thought that they had what it took. And, and supposing themselves to be whole, they feel no need for the great position. But Jesus, with this perfect word that he speaks, I didn't come, Jesus says, to cure people who are healthy. He came into this world to heal the sick, the people who need it, the people who are guilty and corrupt, not the self, uh, them that are righteous in themselves. So instead of standing aloof from that crowd outside of Peter's door, as though that doesn't have anything to do with us and as though we belong to a separate category of people, instead, uh, let us say to ourselves, there am I in that wretched mass of humanity. There am I fallen in Adam, guilty and corrupt by nature. And there is healing. Wonderful healing. We read that Jesus cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. And from another passage, we learn that Jesus laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. He touched them. Amazing. Notice what Jesus does not do. Notice that as Jesus sees all of these people coming towards him, Jesus does not tell Peter, Peter, throw the bolt over the door and get that thing shut fast. Notice that Jesus does not say, I'm not going to go anywhere near that crowd. I'm not going to touch that crowd with a 10-foot pole. Not at all. Jesus, as the great physician, he goes to work determined to heal according to his messianic mission. 
And he, he touched, he laid his hands on them. Like in chapter 8, verse 3, it says, And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him. A leper. He touched a leper. Now many of us, perhaps all of us, have never seen a leper in the flesh. But if you ever did see a leper in the flesh, that would be the last thing you would want to do. Now this healing whereby Jesus healed, we learn in verse 17, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. And you find that in other passages in Scripture as well, in connection with Jesus' miracles, the inspired writers direct us back to the Old Testament about how when the Messiah comes, the lame man shall leap as in heart, the blind shall see, the deaf shall hear, and things like that. That's what was going on. Him that was blind from birth goes home seeing color, seeing the faces of his family and friends for the first time. He who had never walked a day in his life is now jumping around like a deer, so excited working, on, uh, working with his new legs. Him that uh, was brought demon-possessed goes home liberated from the power of the devil. Now there is a question now in verse 17. In what way does this fulfill Isaiah 53? Chapter 8, 17, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. And chapter 53, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, we read, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now, we're familiar with Isaiah 53, what that passage is about. Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The great Old Testament passage uh, presenting the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, in his sufferings and in his death for the salvation of his people. Substitutionary atonement. That's the drumbeat of Isaiah chapter 53. The question is, in what sense does this healing miracle that Jesus wrought relate to the substitutionary atonements, or the substitutionary atonement of the Messiah. What's the connection here? In what way is there substitution? Well, for one, what the text teaches us is that Jesus, in his healings and in his miracles, he did not heal in a kind of cold and business-like way without feeling disinterestedly. Jesus, as it were, he entered into the suffering and the pain that these people felt when he healed them. And even now, Hebrews says that we have a sympathetic high priest who is not unable to be touched with the feeling of our infirmities and our own sicknesses and diseases. We don't have a high priest who doesn't care about that, who's not interested in that, uh, who is disinterested in what we experience in the body, but a high priest who pities us in our misery and pities us in our woes, including those woes of sickness and disease. But there's more here in this connection with Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 presents to us Jesus Christ who by taking upon himself our guilt and through his atoning death and perfect obedience delivers us from the consequences of sin that we uh, deserve because of sin. Again, sickness and disease belong to that umbrella of death. Jesus came to deliver us from death altogether, completely to deliver us from death. And how would he accomplish that? Through his atoning sufferings for our sin. The wages of sin is death, Romans chapter 6. But because of Jesus Christ, we have righteousness and eternal life. And so what we have in Matthew 8, 16, 17 is, this, is Jesus here. What we see him doing is delivering people from the consequences of sin. As it were saying, I, I, ta- I will take your death upon me. 
I will submit to the death that we that, that you and I deserve and thus deliver you from death. Another significance here that we don't want to miss in the miracle, the wonderful healing that Jesus wrought, as we said in the introduction, what we have presented in these two verses is a flashing forth of the kingdom of heaven. A flashing forth of the new. A, a glimmer of Revelation 21 and 22 right there on the spot. What do we mean by this? Well, let's go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The pro-evangel, the mother promise. When God promised to Adam and Eve, I will send my son, and my son shall crush the head of the serpent. He shall save you from your sins. He will deliver you from all of the consequences that you brought into this world. And he will make all things new. And all through the Old Testament, that promise is repeated in one form and one way or another. The great promise of the Messiah that there would be this one who would come into this world, would deliver Israel from all of her enemies and from her sin, and would inaugurate and bring in the kingdom of the new. Perfect peace, perfect wholeness and harmony. No more sin, no more violence, no more sickness, no more death, no more suffering. The messianic age, the great promise of the Old Testament. Someone who would not just undo the effects of the fall, but someone who would raise all things to an even higher level in the new heaven and the new earth. Matthew 8, 16 and 17, here he is. Here's the king. Here's the kingdom. Jesus is on the scene. And he's doing miracles. He's restoring people to bodily integrity. He's delivering people from demon possession. He's uh, giving sight to the blind and giving the lame to walk. So a flashing forth of the new. Even in this miracle of restoring people to bodily integrity, a snapshot of the new heavens and the new earth in advance. And this kingdom connection is brought out as well in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. The setting in Matthew 12 is Jesus had cast out demons, delivered people from demon possession, and the Pharisees, they accused Jesus of casting out devils by Beelzebub. And in Matthew 12, Jesus dispatches that foolish contention on the part of the Pharisees, and then in verse 28, Jesus says these words, But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, that's what's going on here. If I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. And now apply that verse to Matthew 8, 16 and 17. There was, this was kingdom warfare. It's Jesus the King and the kingdom of heaven destroying and casting out the works of darkness and the kingdom of evil. And what a way, what a way in which the Messiah came into this world. Many Jews at the time of Jesus' coming expected the Messiah put it in modern language, someone who would come riding in with glory and dignity, say on the greatest war horse in the land, a great brilliant white horse, big sword strapped to his side, great crown upon his head, someone who would deliver Israel from the Roman Empire and bring Israel to a place of national prominence in the land. All of these associations about dignity and glory and splendor and majesty. Well, in what way did Jesus come? What was the manner of his coming into this world? Who hath believed our report, says Isaiah, already in the Old Testament? Who has believed our report that this Messiah in his coming into the world should be like this little, this little uh, stick 
shooting forth out of the stump of Jesse. Nothing majestic, nothing to attract the human eye, nothing that shouts, here is the Messiah, rather a Messiah born in lowliness and humility who came into this world to suffer. And here now in Matthew 8, 16 and 17, a Messiah who pitches his tent and his tabernacle right in the midst of sin and death and suffering and evil and all of the rest, right in the midst of that, is Jesus Christ, God incarnate. And that coming into the world had as its destination the cross of Calvary. Who hath believed our report? We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are saved, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. A crucified Messiah that caught so many off guard, even Jesus' own disciples. What is going on? That he should suffer and die on the cross. But God had told him already in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. The Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. His life was made an offering for sin. He poured out his soul unto death. Why? To atone for our sins. Because this salvation that Jesus came into this world to work, to bring about, is a salvation from sin. That in the justice of God requires payment for sin and requires righteousness in the place of human unrighteousness. And that's what Jesus was about. And that is what Jesus did. He did righteousness as the king for our salvation. That righteousness which is the key to heaven. That righteousness which is the key of our salvation. And with his stripes, we are healed. Well, what does it mean for us in the New Testament? In the year 2022. What, does, what do these sufferings and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave mean for you who believe in his name? Well, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, yours is the kingdom of heaven. This kingdom of heaven that has been inaugurated through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are in whosoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that kingdom that, that Christ has inaugurated is a now reality. It is now. We partake of it. We enjoy it. We are given it as a free gift. And what does it mean? Well, it means forgiveness of sins. It means justification because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that God acquits us of all of our guilt and reckons us righteous heirs of eternal life on the ground of Christ's merits. What does it mean? Yours is the kingdom of heaven. It means that you are a new creature in Jesus Christ. That we have been delivered from all the power of the, of the devil and have been made alive together with our king and our head. It means that in the midst of the present sufferings of this life, be it sickness, be it disease, be it cancer, be it terminal disease, that means death. Because of Jesus, that death has no more sting in it. That death and these sufferings are no more punishment upon sin to them that are in Christ Jesus. The kingdom is a now reality. We await the perfection of the kingdom of heaven when Jesus comes again. We speak in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. The kingdom is now, the kingdom is coming, and the kingdom shall come, and 
God shall be all in all. And, and we experience that too, do we not? This already not yet dynamic, this tension as it's been called, uh, in that we are, we are in Jesus Christ, members of the kingdom of heaven, and yet at the same time, there's still sin and there's still death and there's still suffering. Well, when it comes to sin, remember Romans 8 verse 1. That comes right after Romans 7. The Apostle Paul, the regenerated believer, he says, uh, he, he speaks of this sin that dwells in him. And he's so grieved by it. He's a new creature in Jesus Christ. He still has the flesh. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ. Romans 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. As a believer, the sin that dwells in us and the flesh that cleaves to us, there's no, there's no condemnation anymore for it. And as regards the, the war of spirit and flesh and old and new the victory is ours in Christ Jesus. Sin shall have no more dominion over you. This kingdom benefit that Christ has given us uh, to share in. And what a day that shall be when Jesus comes again. When he shall finally deliver us from death. If we die in the meantime, that body is coming up out of the grave and Jesus will make it like in his most glorious body. There will be no more sickness, no more disease, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more tears, no more sorrow. The Apostle John didn't see that in the new heavens and the new earth. He sees perfection. He sees perfect righteousness and eternal life, perfect peace in the tabernacle of God with men. Yea, Lord, thy kingdom come. The powerful means Powerful means whereby Jesus healed is, is the word. And apply, we're going to apply that now, still the word by the preaching of the Holy Gospel over the length and breadth of the earth and to us. When it comes to the how of this healing, notice in Matthew 8 how often we find the word, the spoken word, in verse 3, Jesus says, Be thou clean, and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And uh, in verse, verses 8 and following, the centurion says, Just speak the word. You don't have to come into my house. Just speak the word. And Jesus speaks the word, and that centurion's servant is healed. And in, and in verse Matthew 8, verse 16, it says, He cast out the spirits with his word. And they were cast out. And later on in verse 26, he rebukes the winds and the sea. There's a, there is a word there that he speaks, and there was a great calm. In verse 32, Jesus says unto the demons, go, and they go. So Jesus was a man of the word, and he spoke the word, and that word did things. That word accomplished things. It did what Jesus purposed. In other words, Jesus' word is effective. Jesus' word is effective. Our words are not effective. If we were to try to rebuke Lake Michigan on a stormy day by the word, wouldn't do a thing. In fact, the waves would maybe even grow in intensity so as to taunt us for trying to still uh, the waves with our, our puny little word. But this is, when Jesus speaks, it's the word of God. Jesus is God incarnate. This is the one, uh, who spake in the beginning, let there be light, and there was light. Jesus' word has effect. Well, it did then, and it still does today. Though Jesus is in heaven, in the body, Jesus continues to speak, and he speaks through the preaching of the gospel, which is the voice of Jesus Christ, and in a, in a, in a way unfathomable, Jesus is pleased to use earthen vessels and 
men that are subject to like passions as we are, as the, as the bearer. But it is the living word of Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. And that gospel we read in Romans 1 verse 16 is a power. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That gospel is a power unto salvation. It is by that gospel that that Jesus Christ bestows faith, works faith in our hearts so that we believe in Him. It is by that gospel that Jesus bestows the forgiveness of sins by which He translates out of darkness into His marvelous light into the kingdom of heaven. Well, that gospel must be preached. That gospel must be preached. Perhaps some in explaining and interpreting this text would try to derive out of these verses um, something like it's the official mission of the church to heal sick people. Well, those miracles that we learn of in the New Testament, those were particular time in the history of the church and the age of this kind of uh, of these miracles. We see the apostles, right, doing miracles. Uh, Peter says to the one, rise up and walk, and he walked. Well, that, that was limited to that special period in the history of the church. And the official calling of the church is not to heal the sick, although don't go to the other extreme and suppose that the church has no interest in the bodily health of human beings Far from it. The diaconate is a ministry of mercy with respect to our bodies as well. But the official primary calling of the church is to preach the gospel. Or, in a different line, the official calling of the church is not to relieve the world of poverty. A kind of social gospel. But don't go to the other extreme and don't suppose that the church has no, no care, no interest when it comes to uh, things like poverty. The diaconate is a ministry of mercy. There is benevolence. There is financial assistance to them that are in need of help. But what is the official primary calling of the church? It is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. That is the gospel of the kingdom whereby Jesus does things all over the world. Amazing things. Remember that when you open up your news app on your phone or on your computer or in the newspaper and you see so much sickness, death, suffering, evil, violence, so much so that you don't even really want to read the news anymore. Because every day it's just more sin and more suffering and more death and more pain and more darkness and more evil. What's the solution? Is the solution, um, say, Christianizing institutions and trying to politicize those kinds of things out of the world? Is that the solution? The solution is, church, keep preaching the gospel. Preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified and risen from the dead and the promise of forgiveness and eternal life to all those who trust in Him. That gospel is a power. By that gospel, Jesus gives the kingdom. It is the pearl of great price. Well, that gospel must not only be be preached the world over. We ourselves, as sheep gathered, need to hear that gospel again and again and again. And the point now is, we never graduate from the gospel in this life. The Christian never is never retired from the gospel in this life. It's not as though, oh, we've heard the gospel and now we go on our Christian life and we leave the gospel behind us. Not at all. That gospel continues to be a power unto us by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And we need it. 
we poor sheep with a sinful nature for whom not a day goes by without sin, poor sheep in the midst of this valley of suffering and death, this veil of tears, prone by nature to going astray, tempted and beset on every side with trouble and affliction. You see, the church is not... The church is not a place where gathered together are people who don't have any problems. It's not a place where people are gathered together who have arrived and no longer stand in need of help. The church is not a a congregation of those who are getting along just fine on their own. But it is the congregation of Jesus Christ which are poor sheep who need help, who are who suffer and are sad, and whose sins rise up against them. It is a place where medicine is administered to sick people who need this physician, not just once or twice, all through their Christian life. And this Jesus continues to be physician to us all through our Christian life. And he applies this medicine by his word. We read in the Bible that this is a man, God incarnate, the Messiah, who does not break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax. He binds up the brokenhearted and comforts all them that mourn. He gives unto them that mourn in Zion beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. He applies unto our hearts the balm of Gilead. And he applies unto us that medicine that he has procured through his sufferings and death. He freely pardons all of our sins and by his spirit assures us of eternal life. He sustains us in hope in the midst of this present and sustains us in faith in him by his spirit and gives unto us a thirst of the water of life freely. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we give thee thanks that thou in thy grace to usward hast given us no one less than thine only begotten Son, who became man and was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary, and who now lives in heaven at thy right hand, and yet is very near us and with us by his word and by his spirit. Bless us, Father, by this gospel. Assure us of the forgiveness of sins. Cause hope to burn hot in our hearts and grant that we may go forth steadfastly in the patience of hope on this pilgrimage which we walk. Forgive our sins and hear our prayer, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.